can't tell if the chemistry is good by looking at it. It wasn't clear yesterday. For the last time, the saltwater pool is a chlorine pool. This is the Talking Pools podcast with pool pros from every region in the country. If it happens in a pool, you'll hear about it here. Everything from tips and hacks to the latest tricks and trends, breaking news. We lay it on the line. We tell it like it is because we think you deserve to know. Back when I was doing pool service, when I had my pool service company in 2008, there was a bit of a recession and folks started um, not wanting service. They started taking care of their pools themselves to save money, which I totally get. And I had a business I had to grow. So I had to try to figure out a way that I could survive this recession. So I decided that I would start to build relationships with banks and realtors and look into green cleans on foreclosures, which, you know, is honestly it's above and beyond your normal green to clean. And it got to a point now, now there's a lot of different ways to tackle these things. And a lot of folks will drain and refill. And that's awesome. But I needed to have, we spoke at the beginning of the program about a marketable point of difference. So I decided that I would come in and tackle these jobs a little bit differently. Instead of draining, pressure washing, acid washing, and refilling, I would treat the pools without draining. The majority of them. What I would use was aluminum sulfate. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we use alum. And it would enable me to drop everything from the surface to the floor of the pool and then slow back to waste. And I came in at the same exact price as the drain and fill folks. But I started to win more and more bids over and over. And it got to the point where I honestly did not lose any bid on a foreclosed pool because one of the things that really appealed to the realtors was that by me not draining and refilling, that they could save on the cost of water. And I know on one pool, it's really not that much. Um, water always seems, sounds like it would be a lot more expensive than it actually is. It's really not. Tremendously expensive. But when you're dealing with hundreds of pools, it can be. And it got to the point where I was doing at least a hundred plus or minus anywhere from five to ten pools a year. And like I said, we, it was the marketable point of difference that sold it the fact that they did not have to pay for the water. Now, that was not true in every single case, though, because we had to take it on the case-by-case basis because an alum treatment does settle everything to the bottom. And then a slow back to waste is required. So if you have a pool where there's a lot of heavy debris on the floor, obviously a slow back to waste is not going to work really well for you because it's going to constantly 
clog the back head. If you have a portable pump, it's going to clog the the pump pot basket. Uh, leaves and debris inside a closed face impeller. All of that stuff. So if it was something that had a lot of debris, we would still have to go with the drain and fill. But for the most part, uh, we went with the Allen treatments. Now, this pool you see here in this picture, this is one of mine. This was the single most challenging swimming pool that we had at the closure. This pool we nicknamed the Tilapia Pool. And it took uh, a, a long time. It really did. It took a lot longer than I expected, uh, a lot longer than I anticipated. But the bright side is, is that I told the realtor uh, going into it that there was a lot involved here. So here we have a vinyl line pool and we don't want to necessarily drain it just simply because we can't speak on the construction of the walls behind the liner. We don't really want to have liner problems. Uh, the realtor is not going to go for replacing the liner. So we want to maintain um, the structural integrity of everything we have here. So we didn't want to take the water out. The yard itself, um, you can't see in this photo, but it's lined with pine trees. And the needles had been falling, and this pool was abandoned or a bit untouched. We'll go with the word untouched. Um, for seven years. Two years before we took this on, the city came out due to complaints of mosquitoes and added tilapia fry, small baby fish to the water for mosquito control we're there now and we're pulling out fish seriously about 10 to 12 inches long from this pool tilapia on top of that the pine needles that had fallen have compressed and compressed and compressed and the deep end of the pool was now probably the same depth as the shallow i think we broke three or four aluminum telepoles in the process of scooping out these pine needles, we broke a fiberglass telepole, which is not the easiest thing in the world to do. And it's, it, like I said, it took a prolonged period of time. I ended up dropping a guy off there every day for a series of days. And um, of course, you know, we were paid for our time because that was the agreement we had going into this one. But it really was something else. Now, on top of all of that, so we have the tilapia, we have the pine trees, multiple dead, either squirrel or raccoon skulls and bones coming out of this thing. But apparently before we had started, at some point, it was over on that side there, there had been a, a growth of bamboo trees or shoots, whatever. But we didn't know about it because the landscapers had come out and they had cut it all down, but they didn't really take it out. They cut it all at 45 degree angles, just at the level of the ground. So my guy, as we're cleaning, steps back into where this bamboo garden used to be. And one of the shoots goes right through the bottom and up through the top of his foot. And like a trooper, he wants to stay on. He wants to duck and keep working. Where obviously, you know, we grab the guy and we get him over to the dock in the box and have them stitch him up and get him taken care of. The rest of us finished pool but this forever will be known as the tilapia pool and it really doesn't look the picture doesn't do it justice as far as the tears and pain at this facility 
Anyway, I want to talk about water chemistry, and in that, I want to discuss water balance. And why, why would I talk about water balance when we're looking at preventing algae? We know that water balance deals with the protection of the vessel itself. That's the key why we look at water balance. And the water, if it's not in balance, it'll be one of two things. It'll either be corrosive or scale forming. We don't want it to be either one. Obviously, we want the water to be in balance. And this is not going to be a whole big thing about calculating water balance and all that. I just want to go through the components of it just a little bit because they do all tie in <laughs> what we're talking about. Because if your water is corrosive and it damages the surface of the pool, it can cause etching to occur where you get little pockets, deterioration of plaster. It can almost look like the surface of an English muffin. Right? So if you picture an English muffin with all those little nips and crannies and stuff. So even in the most perfect pool, if the plaster deteriorated to that point, every one of those little pockets and those nips and crannies, like in our English muffin surface, create a dead spot in circulation. And if we have dead spots in circulation, algae is going to, that's going to appeal to algae, and it's actually going to give it an opportunity to gain a flip-flop. In fact, if you're looking, if you look at how algae develops, um, let's look at black algae for a moment. One of the places that you'll almost always see black algae, especially if you're dealing with commercial pools, are in the step areas. And that's because we don't have as good a circulation in those areas. Other spots are going to be where the surface is deteriorated. So it finds that dead spot circulation, and then it starts to establish its colony from there because it has found a place where it can get a good foothold. So that's where this all ties in. pH is just as good a place to start as anywhere. pH is actually the logarithm of hydrogen ion activity measured in the inverse, meaning that the more active the hydrogen ions are, the lower the pH reading is going to be. The less active they are, the higher the pH reading is going to be. So it's all about the amount of hydrogen ions and their activity. An easy way to look at it is as the water's demand for acid. I guess that's a simplified way to look. It's kind of accurate, but not really accurate, but it does work for our purposes. So if the pH is high, we can say that the water's demand for acid is high, at least as far as the demand in balancing the pH goes. If the pH is low, we already have a lot of acid. We don't need it. So those are the ways that we can look at it. But again, measurement of hydrogen activity measured in the inverse. So it is measured backwards and it is a logarithm, meaning it's a measurement of how much it takes to get one whole number to the next whole number on the pH scale. And there's a lot of factors that contribute to that. As we get into buffers, we'll talk about those things as well. The pH scale itself runs from 0 to 14. In the pool industry, we're only concerned with a really, really small portion of that scale. Our test kits actually only have numbers that go from 7.0 to 8.0. The chemical that we use to test pH can only measure between 6.8 and 8.2. And again, the name of that chemical is phenol red. But that's all it can test in that range. Anything below 6.8 will look just like 6.8. So if you test yellow for pH on your test kit, 
The only thing you know for sure is that your pH is 6.8 or lower. If it was 5.8 or 4.8, you'd get that same exact yellow color. If it was 8.2, again, the same thing, just on the opposite end of the scale. If you test at 8.2, the only thing you know for sure is that your pH is 8.2 or higher. But for our purposes, 6.8 to 8.2 works because our acceptable range for pH is 7.2 to 7.8 with an ideal of 7.4 to 7.6. So we want to stay in that range. But what happens when we're not? How do you know how much to add? If you know exactly where the pH is and how much water is in the pool, you can calculate a dose of whatever chemical it is you need to raise or lower. So acid, if we need to lower it, or soda ash, if we need to increase it, you can calculate the exact dose. But if you don't know exactly where we are, you only have a couple of options. You can weigh it, right? Add a little bit, come back and check it later. Seriously, though, full service folks, are you coming back later? Probably not. Probably not going to see you again until next week if it's a residential pool. Commercial pool, we'll see you more frequently than that. But we can't afford to wing it for commercial application. Because if you add your two cups of acid and come back two days later, if it didn't lower the pH and the health official happens to come through, they're going to close the pool. In a residential application, it's just really not the best scenario for the pool. I mean, we know that your chlorine's effectiveness is pH dependent, right? The lower the pH, the more effective the chlorine is. So, for example, at a pH of 7.5, your chlorine is 50% effect, which is pretty much where we want it, right? 50% or better. At a pH of 7.2, we're at 66% effective. So we increase in effectiveness as we go down. Now, on the opposite end, if you get to a pH of 8.5, your chlorine is only 9% effective. That is a tremendous drop in just this much of a big old pH scale as far as the effectiveness of your chlorine goes. So while we're talking about that, I want you to think about your saltwater pools. Keep your saltwater pools in mind. Because I know your pH, if you're going out there once a week, is 8.2 or better. So at only 9% effective at 8.4, that causes some concern because obviously we want our chlorine to be as effective as possible. So our solutions, we could go with an acid demand test right? Calculate the exact amount of acid we need using the drops, count the drops. Then there's a chart in the back of the book. And as long as you know the gallonage in the pool, we can determine what dose of acid we need to add to bring the pH to 7.5. But will it still be there when we come back next week? Probably not, because as the salt cell operates, hydrogen gas bubbles off, that causes turbulence, and that drives our pH upward. So our pH is going to be high again next week when we come out. It's just going to slowly raise over time. So we want to prevent that. Some of the things that you can do, one, automation, right? Add an acid feed system to the pool. I know 
homeowners aren't going to want to go for it. Nobody likes to install a different piece of equipment. But ideally, that would be the best way to go about it. Install automation to control the age. On the other end, you could add bore aids. We're going to talk about buffers in a bit, right? But establishing a bore aid level in a pool buffers against an upward drift in pH. So will your pH still be higher when you come out next week? Yes. Will it be off the chart high? It shouldn't be because the buffer's in place and it will slow it down. That's what it does. It deadens the impact. It actually converts the things in the water that are trying to drive the pH upward into something else. So that way the pH doesn't rise. So it will slow down how quickly it moves up. You are likely to come back next week and see that you're still in range. You might be at the high end of the range, but you should still be in range. So establishing a borate level in the water can definitely help. Um, I had a, a fella in class once who told me when we were discussing borates is that uh, he said you can't you can't have salt if you don't have pepper. So consider the borates to be the pepper, right? So we need to utilize both, and um, that does work extremely well. As far as water balance goes, you'll see as you calculate your saturation index, and we're not going to go through the math here. The reality of it is, is there's plenty of great apps available that you can just plug the numbers into, and it will tell you where you're at. Or you could even go, um, the test kits come with these wheels, and then there's some other styles that are around. I don't have another one here to show you, but there are some other styles out there that you could use as well. And just calculate what the saturation index is, then determine what you need to do to bring the water into balance. I can tell you if your water is out of balance, making an adjustment to the pH, that is a huge area as far as making a minute change to have a huge result in that saturation index. So there is that. You know, when, when looking at pH, something that is based on the scale is actually much, much more corrosive than something that is acidic scale. And I know you know this because I'm sure you accidentally, and don't do this, but you already have accidentally spilled acid on your hands. They didn't melt. But you did immediately find out if you had any nits or cuts on your hands. That's for sure. It lets you know that right away. But on the opposite end, like I said, Things that are base in nature are extremely corrosive in comparison to things that are acidic. We, um, a lot of times you'll see, um, when somebody goes out, they eat spicy food. If they're not used to it, when it burns their mouth, they'll grab milk or they'll go for a piece of bread or something along those lines to help. And those items, or even water, those items really don't up as much as they could, because the reason that those hot peppers or spicy foods are spicy is not because they're super acidic. It's because they're super base. And if you go with milk or something along those lines, which also tends to be base, then it's just not going to really help us fun. What you should do if you take a slice of lemon and suck on that, lemons are acidic. That will actually counterbalance the burning sensation in your tongue that you get from eating a hot pepper that's based because of the way it's reacting with the sensors in your mouth. So just some things to look at 
as far as pH is concerned. And we'll talk a little bit more about salt water pools in a minute also. So, total alkalinity. Well, we're not really interested in total alkalinity. It comes down to, we're not. I mean, I know that's what we test for on our test kits. And if you're not using cyanuric acid in your pool stabilizer to protect the chlorine from the sun's UV rays, then the measure you get from your test kit is perfectly fine to use. But if you are using cyanuric acid, it's important to understand that when we test for total alkalinity, what we're testing for is carbonates, bicarbonates, this here, oops, carbonates, bicarbonates, hydroxides, but also cyanurates. And we don't want that. We don't want the cyanurate portion when we're looking at these readings while we test our total alkalinity. What we want is just the carbonates, bicarbonates, and hydroxides, so we'll call that carbonate alkalinity. Now, to eliminate the interference from cyanurates, what we do is we take one-third of the cyanuric acid level and then subtract that from our total alkalinity. That will give us our carbonate alkalinity. So, for example... If my total alkalinity reading was 120, but my cyanuric acid reading was 90, one-third of 90 is 30. I would subtract that from my total alkalinity of 120, and what I would come up with then is 90 parts per million for my carbonate alkalinity, and that's the number I want to use. Not just for the saturation index. That's the total alkalinity number I want to use all the time. In fact, this is one of the biggest problems with cyanuric acid. Yes, it does slow down chlorine's effectiveness. It does not lock it up. Old chlorine lock thing is a myth. Well, what they used to say was that if you have a high enough cyanuric acid level in the water, it'll render your chlorine, no matter how much is in there, completely ineffective, which is not the case. It will slow it down. And it can slow it down a lot, but it will never be completely ineffective. But the contribution of cyanuric acid to total alkalinity, that is a concern, especially if the operator or the homeowner or whoever is testing the water isn't taking it into consideration because that can drastically change the carbonate alkalinity reading. If you don't account for the contribution of cyanuric acid to total alkalinity, when you go to balance the water, it's going to be off. And you run a much larger chance of having water that's corrosive, which can damage the surface, which can create all those little nips and crannies we spoke about, which can present the perfect foam for different types of algae to gain a foothold in the pool and then start to colonize. So we don't want to count that. We do want to talk about the buffering capacity a little bit. So total alkalinity or carbonate alkalinity is known as the water's ability to resist a change in pH. We're going to call it with total alkalinity because cyanuric acid actually does buffer as well. And we'll discuss this in a little bit greater detail coming up. But as far as the buffering capacity, buffering what we're talking about means that it's 
deadening the impact of something that would change the pH. Carbonate or total alkalinity works best against buffering a downward drip in pH. We spoke about borates a moment ago, which works best against buffering an upward drip in pH. They do both buffer in both directions. This one's better at buffering against the pH going up. The other is better at buffering against the pH going down. And the way this works, again, as things that are acidic are introduced to the water, the carbonates, bicarbonates, or hydroxides change whatever it was that was added into something that's not acidic So it takes larger and larger concentrations of whatever this acidic thing is to move the pH down. Similar to what we talked about with borates before, except in moving up. So we have those things to take a look at. But again, so total acetylation is a good thing, but the cyanurates, whether we count them or not, depends on what we're looking at them for. So in our total alkalinity reading as a buffering agent, that's fine to leave that number in there um, because it does help. But understand it is truly carbonate alkalinity that we want to deal with. And if you take the cyanurates out, no matter what we're looking at the total alkalinity for, then you'll just get better readings and have better control over your water chemistry. That makes sense. So it's a test. Basically, look at it like a test kit interference, at least kind of, sort of, but not really. But for the results that we want, it will call it an interference. Calcium hardness. And that's what it's all about, right? Calcium. So whether the water is corrosive or scale forming. Corrosive means the water is going to pull calcium, right, from the walls of the pool. Scale forming means it's going to push calcium out of the water and let it deposit on the walls of the pool. We don't want either one to happen, but as far as algae is concerned, again, I'm more worried about a corrosive situation where it creates the pockets. You don't see a lot of algae buildup around areas where you've had scaling because it's kind of hard and not really porous, so it doesn't really give those opportunities for a foothold. It does, on your tile line, calcium buildup just from evaporation or whatever, can catch more body oils, lotions, things along those lines, contributing to a growing ring around the bathtub, the sun line. So we don't want that. But back into the water, calcium is a huge concern. You, If you don't have enough calcium in the water, if your water is not saturated in calcium and carbonates, it's going to pull both from the walls of the pool. And that's when the eshing Folks with vinyl liners don't often think that a calcium hardness level matters in a vinyl line pool, but do understand that vinyl liners are manufactured with calcium carbonate. And there is evidence that water that's undersaturated can pull the calcium from the liner. And that could potentially cause damage. Even when looking at fiberglass pools, we know that you're more likely to have cobalt staining if you have a lower calcium hardness level. It's just a fact. Now, what causes the cobalt staining are little pinholes in the acrylic finish, but in the gel coat, rather. But 
maintaining a higher calcium hardness level can keep those stains to a minimum. Then there's another thing we should look at too. This has been a special episode excerpt directly from Rudy Stankowitz's Algae Prevention and Eradication Certification course, which can be found at onlinepoolclasses.com along with other unprecedented educational opportunities for the pool professional. Oops. just wanted to take a minute to say thank you for listening today. I'm hoping you enjoyed the episode as much as we enjoyed putting it together for you. Listen, it's been a couple of wacky, crazy, screwed up years from pandemic to Poolmageddon. I just want you to know that we are all in this together. If there's anything that we can do for you, send me an email at talkingpools at gmail.com. Again, that's talkingpools at gmail.com. We're here. This is your podcast. We are the Pool People's Podcast of the Pool People for the Pool People by the Pool People's Podcast. This one is about you. So thank you for tuning in and listening. Do me a favor. Click subscribe before you go. That way you don't miss an episode. 